thank you. I've, I've got a certain trepidation about following that um, talk. Um, I'll have to cut all the Bataille and Blanchot. And, uh, <laughs> out, out of, there wasn't any, don't worry. Um, but I'm, I'm now terrified that, uh, <laughs> of being a shit theologian or something like that. Um, anyway, um, I'm also going to apologise for sort of reading this off the, uh, off the laptop. Um, I come from, from way up north where paper is a scarce entity for us. Um, I just, I just didn't print it out in time. Okay, so um, a question I've been thinking about for the last few years, on and off, um, is what does the demonic mean uh, in contemporary culture, or rather, how does it mean anything? And to answer that, I've been looking at particular scenes um, which we might interpret as demonic, remembering that the demonic within Western culture is almost always associated with a performance or a theatric or a, an aesthetic of some kind. And while these are often passing, fleeting, momentary scenes, I'm trying to think about how these relate together and to a sort of broader history of, of demonology. So what I've got is, is um, certainly not a, a complete argument um, uh, yet, just some, just some ideas and thoughts, really. So here we go. Um, in a little-known paper written for the International Journal of Ethics in 1936, Henry Lance begins with a striking claim that his paper was an attempt to prove the existence of the devil. He continues, this is a quote, the mingled absurdity and bigotry of such an undertaking in the 20th century, in the very flush of the age of scientific enlightenment, will perhaps seem less striking if one considers the vagueness that prevails in our views with regard to the gentleman whose existence I desire to demonstrate. For just who is, what is the devil? End quote. To prove the existence of the devil, Lance suggests we recognise that the devil is a surface phenomenon, quote, one-sided, only skin-deep, with no real background, aimless evil, end quote. But, and here's the clever twist that informs the whole paper, aimless and idle talk is gossip. Hence, the point of his paper, which is entitled The Metaphysics of Gossip, is to argue that the act of gossiping should be seen as an ethical affair, not only because it involves pointing out the rights and wrongs of other people's actions frequently, but more importantly because the language of gossip refuses to be drawn into a moral narrative or teleology, instead carried by a slowly mutating repetition, and thus remains, in Lance's words, a malady of our age. Um, now, it's a tenuous argument, um, and it's, it's not really worth... There's a reason why it's a little-known paper. But it interests me for two reasons. It's the lead-in, right? It's the lead-in. First, Lance identifies a relationship between the demonic and the apparent banality of the surface phenomena of modern culture. This not only refuses moral narratives, but recasts them. Some 40 years later, in his Walter Benjamin-inspired sociological study, Anton Ziedevelt linked in a particular type of repetition in social interaction, banal idiom and the cliché, to secular society's loss of a fixed sense of authenticity or legitimacy which religion once provided. Modern secular society, for Ziedevelt, becomes clichégenic. In the absence of religious ritual, icon or cosmological destiny, we have instead changeable, malleable and ultimately facile points that adapt perfectly to the consumerist demand of free market capitalism. Meaning is reduced to function, and in this sense, Nietzsche's seismic claim of modernity, God is dead and we have killed him, 
is important not because of its literal deicide, but rather because, as a quotable tagline, it circulates and disseminates more readily throughout all kinds of listless discourses. On a less doom-laden note, though, because uh, Zeta Allen goes on to say that, that basically because we accept clichés without thinking about them, we, we open ourselves up to tyranny, and totalitarianism takes over. Um, on a less doom-laden note, more recently Sarah Spence has noted that in our contemporary culture, repetition, quote, has migrated from superficial ornamentation to deep structural principle. It provides a glimpse of what differentiates our era from all others. For Spence, repetition is the embedded trope of the late modern age through rolling news, ticker tape headlines, retweeting, hyperlinks, which both compress and shape public dialogue through repetition. But rather than destroy the aura of authentic experience, as Zedeval argues, for Spence, such repetitions create and maintain authenticity in both negative and positive and destructive and creative ways. Spence points as an example to the 9-11 Commission report, which documents how it was only the crashing of the second plane that authenticated the event of the first. It was only the repetition of the unthinkable that confirmed the singular event of 9-11. Thus far from the destruction of the event which Zedevelt prophesied, from the perspective of cultural rhetoric, today the singular event is never enough. So in this sense, Lance asks an important question as to how decisive moral tropes such as the devil can be carried by the gossip as an early conceptualising of precisely what we now see in, say, the breaking of the news of Osama bin Laden's death over Twitter, which is how it, how it happened, um, leaked both by a White House expert and by Dwayne The Rock Johnson of the World Wrestling Entertainment Corporation. You can't make this up. The second point I find interesting about Lance's paper is why it fails. The problem with Lance's argument is one that dogs many discussions on the demonic, which is that while his conceptual starting point is the devil, such signs, symbols and figures of individual demons are not identical to the dialectical performance of the demonic itself. In Paul Tillich's The Interpretation of History, published incidentally in the same year as Lance's paper, Tillich argues that if the demonic, quote, has not yet become an empty slogan, its basic meaning must always be retained, the unity of form-creating and form-destroying strength. This unity distinguishes the demonic from the satanic, the latter being a mere, quote, destructive principle inimical to meaning, which has no actual existence unlike the demonic. End quote. And while this destructive negation is at work in the demonic, it is situated, quote, in connection with the positive, creative, meaningful principle, end quote, rooted in the form of the demonic, to take a form as a creative act. And this simple distinct distinction between form creation and form destruction comprises the basis of the demonic as a creative power. But Tillich also notes how the creative act of the demonic is often passed over in what he terms religious ages or overemphasized in secular ages. In this way, Lance's identification of a sign, the devil, immediately diverts his attention from the question of the surface itself. Remember, he said the devil is the surface phenomenon. And more specifically, what carries the surface as a medial form and how such surfaces interact and interconnect to create the appearance of meaning, um, which is more, I think, what, what Tillich's sort of pointing towards. Instead, a focus on the individual devil leads us down what is by now a familiar route, an identification of the demon as other and an analysis focusing on difference. In works such as Cohen's Folk Devils and Moral Panics, the classic media um, sociological text, um, for example, 
Demonization is a general process of representing an other as threatening but ultimately servile or even ridiculous. It's the pantomime devil character who audiences take pleasure in booing from the stage. You see these sort of devils all the way through um, Western history, I think. But while studies such as Cohen's often rightly point out to the political effects of othering, a secondary othering can take place as a result from his own critical standpoint, invoking dichotomies of rationality and irrationality between intellectual critique, done by us clever people, and the passive consumption of modern demons by the silly people who read the Daily Mail. Um, Daily Betrayal. Daily Betrayal, there you go. Um, but what, I've skipped over all the Bataille bit, I just said that was before you. Um, but what is lost in the simplified casting of the demonic as mere difference, irrationality, other, etc., is also what is lost in Lance's dismissal of gossip as antithetical to proper thinking. So, you know, Lance saying the devil is gossip, it's, it's, a, it's a critique, except, he says, if we let artists work with gossip, then they'll raise it to sort of higher standards. The reduction of the demonic to one destructive meaning overlooks the creative role of simulation and repetition that gives the demonic its specific and persistent effect throughout our um, certainly contemporary culture. So, on to the clickbait title. Osama bin Laden. The figure of bin Laden, of course, shows how, despite scientific enlightenment and the multiple secularisation theses, Demons very much occupy the 21st century Western imaginary. As a devil, Bin Laden calls forth apparitions of the Oriental-Occidental divide, narratives of past crusades raised and re-raised from the dead of the past, metamorphoses from heroic freedom fighter to horrific terrorist, and images of the classical termagant figure in curious juxtaposition with emerging medial technologies. Aesthetically, Bin Laden was an exemplar devil, and as such is immersed in unwieldy relations of myth and narrative surrounding the figuring of difference. But bearing in mind what I've just tried to say, I want to pick up on a very small part of this narrative, which is around Bin Laden's death. Not the fact that Bin Laden was killed, but he was killed at least twice. At least there were two official reports of his death. On the 2nd of May 2011, the White House counterterrorism advisor, John Brennan, gave a relatively detailed and immediate account of the death. And remember that we already knew that that had happened via Twitter, so it's already circulated through the sort of gossip and surfaces. And then we get this, um, the event of the death. The next day, White House Press Secretary Jay Carney presented a different narrative. In the first, Bin Laden's wife had been killed whilst being used as a human shield by the armed terrorist, and the Navy SEALs were instructed to take him alive if possible. In the second, the wife was only injured, having rushed at the seals, and it was not clear, and highly unlikely, that bin Laden was himself armed. Okay. Trying to find these two reports took some time. Like, I remember it happening at the time, and since then it's all got soaked up in conspiracy theories and whatnot. Anyway. The first and perhaps most obvious reading of this is that one death simply corrected the other. The initial report was inaccurate, so the second report corrected, explained, or admitted ambiguities. Certainly enough for some to question whether President Obama's claim that justice had been done was wholly legally or morally justified. And if we focus on the truth of the matter, or the clar clarification of facts, or the nature of justice, in other words, if we treat this as an epistemological or moral issue, then we remain in that domain of difference. We remain talking about individual demons, individual devils. There is no repetition as such, just the bringing to light of all known facts. 
Second possible reading is that this double announcement simply reasserts the conventional wisdom that the demonic only has meaning at all in terms of its ultimate overcoming by the powers of the divine. But with the added caveat that, since the death of God, the conspiracy theory is the only metaphysical certainty we have. The absence of a body would always fuel such a reading, absence of Bin Laden's body, that is. But conspiratorial readings still insist on a linear narrative unity. They still insist that a threat is presented and overcome. The demonic scene still becomes a signification of demons. In Tillich's terms, this still emphasises the destructive aspects of the demonic at the expense of the creative. But the real interest of the absence of a corpse in this whole uh, two deaths was the deliberate removal of a sign or symbol of, de- of the death, meaning that the event of the death itself directly opened a question of what Boris Groys terms submedial suspicion. Epistemology and morality concern the exchange and relation of signs on the medial surface, but Groys notes signs necessarily block their medial carrier, which also sustains them. So for Groys, it's like there's, there's, say, the painting that you can look at and you can flip it over and see the canvas, but you can't see them both at the same time. If you want to see how a television works, you can't watch the television at the same time. So that's what he sort of means about submedial. Um, submedial space thus remains a, quote, dark space of suspicion, speculations and apprehensions, but also that of sudden epiphanies and cogent insights, end quote. The submedial subject is not one of knowledge, but of fear and suspicion. The ontology of media, then, and medial repetition, is not about the correspondence of signs to truth, but medial sincerity, that is, how much we trust in the carrier of signs. So this is kind of the point, right? Perhaps, perhaps, I'm not sure, there is something within this repetition of Bin Laden's deaths which embeds the scene within the broader history of the demonic as a cultural form. And I think the link would be the sense in which the sincerity of the event itself was created only in the act of repetition. With all else that surrounded the figure of Bin Laden, whose effective power of terrorism went well beyond bounded acts of terror and was maintained rather through the aesthetic means of emergence within network media, both of his own production and of those who fought him. There's a big debate about whether Bin Laden should be seen as a video artist in a very sort of loose term which I'm not going to talk about here. (laughs) For his death to be authentic, there had to be some kind of cover-up, some kind of error, some form of unreliable report. Too many surfaces going around, too many... One act would never be enough, for with the perpetual possibility of alternative accounts and iterations, images, documents, feeds, etc., medial sincerity is only really achieved once a report has been first rendered suspect and then repeated. In this way, the sincerity of the single event is premised on the metamorphosis of its repetition, a repetition which assures both that the demon has been eliminated and that the initial suspicion was warranted, initial suspicion of the the truth of the event. The audience has, in effect, seen the event for themselves, but only by seeing the undoing of that event in terms of its submedial conditions. At this moment, when these two deaths exist within the same medial space, the laying bare of a cover-up assures a sincerity to the event that it would not otherwise exhibit. It gives the two deaths one life, rooted in the trust that some event had happened. It also provides a sincerity to the event that allows the audience to move onwards into the arrangement of signs and figures, books, films, conspiracies, and so on. Okay? So it gives a trust that we can carry on and start talking about epistemology and moral morality and whatnot. But it's a, it's a fleeting moment, you know? It, it, it passed over, it's, you know... 
It's, it's, it's there very briefly. In what sense, though, is this a demonic sincerity? Well, to think this through, I want to link this very, very briefly to a particular logic of demonic repetition, which has, I think, been present throughout Western culture, but running underneath and often obscured by the more visible casting of the demonic as simply other or difference. Tertullian's On the Soul, for example, cast the demon as a simulator, not of Christ, as St. Paul does with his Antichrist, but of the dead. Demons allow the dead to walk, which in turn discredit the significance of Christ's resurrection. As Pierre Klosowski notes, I'm not sure if Pierre Klosowski is... <laughs> is yeah, good. <laughs> um, this correspondence of existence and simulation, on the one hand, translates into the dichotomy of God as being the demon as non-being, so we've got existence, we've got simulation. On the other hand, the simulation is not simply inauthentic, but rather undermines the very facticity of the authentic itself. The power of the demonic is not simply the opposite of the power of God, but the gnawing doubt, the risk of error and suspicion that accompanies such a repetition. Indeed, as a, quote, perversion of the creative, end quote, in Tillich's words, the demonic troubles and subverts our very confidence in both our capacity to represent the difference which marks the demon out from ourselves and to critique it. So the demonic very much lies underneath, carries this discussion of the demon as alterity, as difference. Um, this particular movement of demonic repetition is a recurrent theme in Western culture, even when, as Leatherbarrow argues, the increasingly secular conditions of 19th century culture led to representations of demons reflecting an internal human condition rather than an external spirit. But rather than this internalising resting easy simply in figures of psychosis or mania, it also coincides with the communicative institutions of a growing media culture, a culture which incidentally also saw the birth of the cliché, going back to my earlier point. Thus, we find across literature examples of the demonic which call into question the creative destructive dialectic of repetition. Dostoevsky's doppelganger and Shelley's uh, replicant in Frankenstein are also not simply monsters, but ambiguous reiterations of social bureaucracy and scientific ambition. In such examples, the threat is not to a clearly identifiable authentic human existence, so much as a threat to the sincerity with which we can trust the medial carriers of the existence to allow us to articulate the difference between this life, or in the case of Bernardin, this death, and its uncanny replica. The demonic is, in that sense, a faulty replica within a culture increasingly dependent upon hidden submedial processes of technological replication. It's something, if I had like three hours more, that Kierkegaard is, is constantly wrestling with when he's trying to describe the demonic, but we have a paper on that later, which I'm very excited to listen to. Um, but he has all these kind of um, examples as he's trying to. He's got a very clear sense that the demonic is a is a a, a faulty replica of of the religious believer. Just just at the point where the religious believer makes the leap of faith, the demonic goes back into this inward objection to existence. It sort of closes everything off. But every time he starts to try and articulate that and typologize it in a sort of scientific way, it it keeps outreaching itself it keeps it keeps going beyond the limits that he has and he keeps coming up with in um the concept of anxiety you know just keep getting these 
the, these continuous namings of what the demonic's this, the demonic's this, the demonic's this. And every time it goes into that printing press, every time it enters into the, 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 the sort of process of circulated reiteration, um, it starts to take on this life of its own. And we find Kierkegaard talking about, for example, I am going to read this out because I think I've got the time. Um, he describes demonic despair as if, quote, an author were to make a slip of the pen and this clerical error becomes conscious of being such. Perhaps it was no error, but in a far higher sense was an essential constituent in the whole exposition. It is then as if this clerical error would revolt against the author out of hatred for him, were to forbid him to correct it and were to say, no, I will not be erased. I will stand as a witness against thee that thou art a very poor writer. Um, so in terms of where I'm up to and trying to think through this, I guess is in terms of my question of how does the demonic mean anything today, um, there's a sense in which the demonic emerges in this particular capacity of our technologies of repetition um, to create the um, illusion of an authentic life, to speak back to us outside of our control, outside of our sovereignty, sovereignty and present something that disrupts our ability to differentiate between authentic life and um, inauthentic life. What's really interesting about the two deaths of Osama bin Laden, if you know, if that's the case, is we move into almost the second stage of that, where it's not about the sustaining of, of, of inauthentic life or demonic life, but the sustaining of a death. And that's where I'm up to in trying to in trying to understand what actually uh, is going on in terms of how Bin Laden's death, more so than his life, relates his figure as a demon to the history of demonology in Western culture. I think I've done that in the time. Uh, thank you.